0: On the nuclear side, this is a story again of human excellence, of thousands of thousands of people working at these plants, doing an absolutely fantastic job, reaching really high levels of excellence, but we never get to meet those people or talk to those people. And, you know, that's the privilege that I've had over the last few years. And I think, you know, one of the challenges going forward, increasing public acceptance. Year after year, we're seeing very high levels of acceptance.
1: The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, Evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. 2023 was a big year for the perception and advancement of nuclear power, not only in Canada, but globally. In this episode, I'm interviewing friend of Rational View and fellow podcaster, Dr. Chris Kiefer, to reminisce about the work his group, Canadians for Nuclear Energy, has accomplished in the past year. If you enjoy the podcast, I urge you to press like on your podcast app and help me spread the profile of this podcast around so that other people can see it and get a piece of The Rational View. Come join me on my Facebook group, The Rational View. Uh, I'd love to hear your opinions on what you hear today. Chris Kiefer is an emergency room physician, medical simulation educator, nuclear energy advocate, and podcaster. He's the medical director of EM Deliberate Practice, the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy and director of Doctors for Nuclear Energy and the host of the Decouple podcast. Chris, welcome back to The Rational View.
0: Hey, Al, it's great to be back with you. Um, what a wordy introduction. Um, some of those things are, are a little bit dormant, just in case uh, your audience thinks that I don't sleep at all. I, I occasionally do.
1: But, um. I, I'm amazed at how much you, you actually do accomplish, though, uh, in the time available to you as, as an emergency room doctor. I mean, obviously, that's a, a huge time commitment to be um, pushing a, a, a basically a global agenda on nuclear energy and and leading Canadians into this uh, nuclear future is is a tremendous effort. So congratulations on on what you've done. I want to, in this podcast episode, maybe go over the year 2023 and review and just, you know, it was a busy year for you and the Canadians for nuclear energy. I think the global perspective on nuclear power is changing significantly, especially over the last 12 months. People seem to be coming around in general to the concept of nuclear as uh, an environmentally friendly alternative uh, and a, a method to address climate change uh, with all of the good things that come with a stable uh, baseload and a just transition from fossil fuels to a, to another high-performing energy source. Um, why do you think... Uh, we've had so much success over the last year. What do you think is is, is behind this change?
0: Well, I think we have to look back a little bit further because you're right, there's been a, a ton of progress, particularly this year, but it's been building. The momentum's been building, that snowball going down the hill, which is now uh, boulder sized. Um, it, it got started a little earlier than that. Um, and, you know, What's, what's so extraordinary, I think, is going back to when you and I first became um, aware of this issue and, and started thinking about it. As you mentioned, emerge doc, this was uh, you know an unforeseen uh, set of activities. My background has been more in kind of humanitarian causes, but uh, really come to see energy uh, in humanitarian terms. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, going back a little bit further, you know, I just got back from COP twenty eight in Dubai. Um, that's the Conference of the Parties, or uh, This year, I think it was almost 100,000 people um, jetted in, some in private jets, uh, (laughs) (laughs) some in passenger jets. Save the world. (laughs) Very few, um, you know, uh, making it the way that Greta did, I guess, over uh, to North America by by sailboat a few years ago. But Mm. in any case, um, you know, these, these huge gatherings where, um, you know, the wording of documents, you know, phase outs versus phase downs, uh, seems to consume an incredible amount of diplomatic capital. Um, but in any case, you know, the first one I went to was in Glasgow, uh, you know, in, in three years ago in, in 20, 2021, I guess that's two years ago. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, what an, what an incredible sea change. Um, and that's really, really where, you know, in the Canadian front, um, we had, um, the I guess kind of base level of where attitudes were at um, was very apparent and I think that's a good contrast for us so in in 2021 I had this wonderful sort of uh, viral video moment where I was able to confront Stephen Gilbo our uh, former and current uh, minister of of energy sorry of of, uh, environment and climate change Ah, uh, former Greenpeace activist. Um, the guy had been sort of present at every anti-nuclear moment imaginable, trying to shut down the Pickering nuclear station, et cetera. He at one point um, repelled off the CN Tower um, in a statement against climate change. In any case, this guy came with a lot of, of blinders, and coming out of a talk about uh, powering past coal, uh, put on by the World Wildlife Fund, um, I managed I to ambush him and. and you know, essentially call him out, um, asking him if his anti-nuclear priors would shadow his his judgment, giving the emergent scientific consensus on the need for nuclear power to combat climate change. Yeah, um, and, you know, this is a minister who, like at every opportunity when asked about nuclear, dodges the question. Usually it's uh, Minister Wilkinson, uh, Minister of Energy and Natural Resources, who, who takes the question, um, but it was very reflective of the time. You know, we were getting into this again um, as the German nuclear phase out, built momentum as uh the the belgium nuclear phase out um was was again gaining momentum as well um and just over these last 2 years um we've really seen reversals there unfortunately germany carried through with um what i heard creatively referred to as uh you know industrial seppuku uh referring to <laughs> the japanese, <laughs> japanese method of uh, splitting your abdomen open with a short uh, short blade uh, out of mm-hmm. honor mm-hmm. um But in in many other places, um, we've seen a total turnaround. Uh, France, many people would be surprised by that. A country that has gotten up to 75% of its electricity from nuclear had a plan to phase out down to 50% just out of this kind of European anti-nuclear zeitgeist. Um, You know, a bit of a reaction to Fukushima and and this idea that just nuclear was uh, sunsetting as a power source. Mm-hmm. um you know and and this year uh, the announcement of uh, plans for six new large reactors and just this week saying that's not going to be enough we're going to need another 18 another eight more for a total of 14 so this is all happening within uh, a global context it's huge. um for sure and in in terms of Canada again I, I gave you a bit of a background um, in terms of our governing liberal party a real split between um, a uh, number of important ministries and even the, the prime minister's office who were really captured by um, environmental NGOs, many, if not most of the PMO staffers were former worldwide wildlife fund um, operatives um, with a clear anti-nuclear wow. agenda. And and as I mentioned, Stephen Gilboa, former Greenpeacer, um, mm-hmm. you know, those are folks really setting the agenda. Um, yeah, yeah. But there is this other base, right? And, and this is the advantage that that Canada has, I think, over a lot of other countries that are considering nuclear or, you know, disadvantaged by nuclear bans, like our sister nation of Australia, is that we have um, a momentum here. We have 76,000 people that work in this sector um, that, you know, can demonstrate what the opportunities are like, what the, you know, high skilled jobs are available, um, and those folks vote and that's really been, you know, our strategy at Canadians for Nuclear Energy is to, is to find a sort of base of people that will advocate. And obviously there's diehards like you and I that are very involved. Um, but again, in terms of mobilizing a base, that's what we were able to do really with our, our house of commons petition campaigns, um, which have ultimately, you know, had a big impact, um, on things mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the green bond. I'm going to get off my diatribe here and, and let you get some questions in edgewise, but hopefully that gives you your <laughs> listeners a bit of context.
1: No, you're, you're, you're very dynamic and you have a lot of answers. Um, Canadians for Nuclear Energy, I think, has made great headway in changing the discussion around nuclear power in Canada from a, from a fear-based narrative to a rational one, which we obviously here at the Rational View approve. What would you say is your, was your biggest success of, of 2023 as a group?
0: I'm going to hearken back again, just not to get stuck within 2023. I know it's kind of the end of your wrap up and I'm maybe I'm, uh, annoying you at the home, dodging some questions here, but um, I think just a great, a great example uh, was back from 2022. Um, uh, Sheila Wittock, who's an active member of our group um, and works on the deep geologic repository front, um, mm-hmm. really combating uh, a lot of fear mongering, um, both locally and, and you know, supported by an activist network more, uh, more broadly. Um, invited me to come up to Teeswater, the potential site of the Canadian Deep Geologic Repository, um, to give a a talk called The Physician's Perspective on Nuclear Waste. Um, And it's this kind of boots on the ground, interactions with folks um, coming, you know, without without judgment, listening to concerns, um, and communicating in a way that, frankly, um, organizations um, like the Nuclear Waste Management Organization really struggle to. Um, And, you know, I I empathized with them. I said, listen, ultimately, this is your choice, whether to approve or disprove this project. You know, if I lived here and this was my backyard, my concerns would be more about a large industrial development, a lot of dump trucks moving aggregate around. But let me bring the perspective on radiation here. And, you know, I got Mm -hmm. to spend a lot of time with the Nuclear Waste Management Organization, speaking with geologists, speaking with corrosion experts and others you know, a culture of, you know, highly, highly trained people working in these extreme silos, you know, a guy just dedicated to, you know, understanding copper corrosion and anoxic environments, 500 meters down in this, this rock formation. (laughs) But, you know, I spoke to the guy involved with the risk modeling and I said, listen, like, just give me the worst case scenario of, you know, if everything goes wrong at this, you know, high, uh, high level nuclear waste uh, storage facility, 500 meters underground, Um, And what he told me was it would take a million years with a whole bunch of assumptions, you know, They had one assumption in the worst case scenario that um, it's called an all cask failure scenario. And this would be that, you know, these highly engineered casks, not only do they have a little micro crack in a weld, but they're just not there. Like to give you a sense of how (laughs) they, they set up these assumptions to disadvantage themselves. And there's some massive geologic fault that they haven't discovered with essentially like a river of water going through and the maximally exposed theoretical person has a has a ground well drinks all their water from the most contaminated spot, grows all their food in that area, and I said, "Well, what what is that maximum dose? Well, it takes a million years, and it's it's eighty sieverts. And for context, that's about the dose you get from having a smoke alarm in your house in a wow. million years,
1: right? And so, but that's, that's the not, worst case without the. So we're putting in all these extra layers of protection that you know really don't do anything other than protect us from." Eighty nanosieverts a million years from now. Is that yeah? 80 why a <laughs> why year, are we doing this? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Just to make right? it more I mean, expensive. Right? So I think I think you know we've nuclear as an industry has fallen victim to this the the ALARA principle right as, as low as reasonably uh, achievable is yeah. is kind of the philosophy that is applied to radiation dose. So you know, and this what it means is. Make it as expensive as other sources of energy and just a little bit more, even if you don't need to, right? Other, other sources of energy like coal and, and, uh, gas can pollute at will, spread their, uh, exhaust products into the atmosphere and use dilution. But nuclear is special. Nuclear can't kill anybody a million years from now. It's, it's this unlevel playing field that I, that just roasts me because at the rational view here, that's not rational. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I yeah. think much of the environmental opposition to nuclear power, you know, from environmentalists who should love this, I think is coming from degrowthers who've been using climate change. They've seen this as their golden lever to overturn the prevailing economic systems and, and you know, tear down capitalism. Um, and this is where I think we get a lot of pushback from the people who should be with us they're not really environmentalists they're actually anti-capitalists who have agglomerated onto this cause because they've seen it as a lever um what, what do you think of that perspective on on who we're pushing against here
0: yeah it's, i'd say it's uh that's definitely an element what you're describing there um obviously you know nuclear is a dual-use technology and unfortunately it's made it made its global debut in the form of the hiroshima and nagasaki bombs um and you know There was a need, I think. Well, maybe not a need, but there was a natural reaction, which was to. A fearmonger about uh, particularly about radiation most of the injuries from those bombs were traditional blast and thermal injuries certainly there was a radiation component but about 10 15% of the casualties were radiation related but that mm-hmm. was the special thing about this bomb in addition to its sheer explosive power was this this radiation element which was mm-hmm. you know, provoked provoked a lot of fear and and that fear was um, built upon um, in order to try and create a world in which we would never use these things again and you know god willing we never will yeah. um, but, you know, I, again, I always try and be compassionate and try and put myself in the shoes of my opponents. And ultimately that's, it's very helpful, um, not just to kind of win the fight, but also just to, you know, there's, there's a saying, um, like it takes a smart person to win an argument, but a wise person to, um, like win an agreement to win a mutual understanding. Mm-hmm. And, and again, anyway, that that's kind of my effort. And I think I'm botching the quote there, but. Um, I yeah, I, I think I think it's 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 that tie to nuclear weapons that ultimately drives much of the um, environmental objections to nuclear. and that okay. that sort of special idea that radiation is a particularly dangerous um, force within nature.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And as you and I know, it's especially at low doses, it is an incredibly weak carcinogen compared to some of the things you were discussing there, like particulate uh, air pollution and and chemotoxins. Um, what I will say, you know, in terms of the because you know, i'm I'm a medical doctor. I interact at a pretty high level with folks from across the nuclear sector. And I think you know what um, is assumed by the outside is you know these folks are always you know based on the Simpsons essentially, right? but trying to cut <laughs> corners, um, you know playing fast and loose with safety. Mm-hmm. And what mm-hmm. I found is the absolute opposite to a almost pathological sense. And you know, I think that's illustrated a little bit by the nuclear waste management organization. You step in there, and you start off with this just kind of shocked reaction to these guys are chasing safety margins, which are just illogical and irrational, right? And yeah. then there's sort of a second phase where you go, but this is incredible. I mean, the amount of like human excellence that's going into trying to be as perfect as possible, that, that's kind of cool. And then you leave and you go back into your own orbit and you go, these people are crazy again. It's, it's just an interesting <laughs> experience. But, you know, we see yeah. this all the time in a field which is so technical is nuclear engineering solutions to communications problems. Or, mm. you know, in the case of um, a lot of the hyper small modular reactors, a nuclear solution um, to a financing problem. Um, the nuclear industry really struggles to match the solution to the problem they're trying to address. And that example of, again, trying to engineer down to a radiation dose in this completely unrealistic scenario of less than a smoke detector per year is just, I think, probably one of the most yeah. emblematic things out there. And, and for me, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm an emergency doctor. I care deeply about our public services. I know that the amount of capital we have to dedicate towards you know, social entitlements, healthcare, education is limited. It's based upon the productivity of our economy. Um, mm-hmm. so I don't want to see capital misallocated. And so, you know, my question to the nuclear waste management organization is, okay, how much less could we spend to get to two smoke detectors worth of, of radiation in a million years or 10 or a hundred, right? Because or right now a, the even is a to spend, banana, <laughs> <the planet laughs> to spend close to $26 billion, um, on this facility. Um, and you know, I think you could get it down to the single billions, um, and, you know, not have any meaningful impact on human health and be able to spend, you know, tens, another 10, 15, 16 billion on the things I really care about, um, which are, you know, the ingredients
1: of human flourishing, good healthcare, good education, et cetera. Uh, The the problem I think is is a bureaucratic one. The um, previous governments have allocated something like $22 billion to this, right? That they have a fund already existing that they've, they've They've taken from the operating profits of nuclear over the last several decades, and they have like $22 billion available for this fund. So the people that are working to us say, yes, I've got all this money to spend. Yeah. <laughs> what can I do? Yeah. I think that the, that's the wrong perspective. And, and then, and then they, they see this Alera principle, and they don't question it, right? We have to get this as low as reasonably achievable, Yeah, yeah. not as low as, you know, other sources of energy, or as low as acceptable to the public, because you know no, no power source is perfectly safe. People fall off roofs installing solar panels. You know windmills fall over, and, and every now and then kill people. There, you're never going to be perfect in anything. And, and sure, it's great to strive for this, but as you say, it's not rational to. It, what you need to do is look for your lives per dollar um, metric. In terms of how you're spending this and and there are so many better better ideas you and your in the medical field i'm sure are, are aware of, of many of them but let, let me let me shift the argument or the discussion a little bit yeah. um and talk about some of the successes we've had um pickering yeah. for example wow the the fact that we got Canadian government to, or, or the Ontario government to say, wait a minute, maybe we should think about keeping Pickering. What, what does that mean to to Ontario and to Canada? What what does that change of heart mean in terms of energy and in terms of our? Going well,
0: I mean, we were, we were heading towards taking a massive step backwards, um, on both carbon emissions and on air pollution, uh, Pickering, uh, it's, you know, it's hard to imagine before you get into this world, um, just how much power is produced by a facility that's, you know, the size of, you know, a large shopping mall. Um, mm-hmm. but it's about equivalent to the Canadian side of Niagara Falls, um, which is about 15% of Ontario's electricity. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the the plan to refurbish Pickering was considered um, in the early 2000s. Um, The Environmental impact assessment was approved. Um, Plans were made. Um, But there was a lot of kind of going back and forth at that time on how much electricity we actually needed. We just suffered the global financial crisis. Um, We deindustrialized a lot of uh, a lot of Ontario and energy demand dropped quite a bit. And, you know, as a politician, I'm sympathetic, you don't want to overbuild your electricity supply, because it's a major cost to your ratepayers. And you're always trying to you know, balance things and, and Mm. and get prices that are affordable for the population. I'm sympathetic with that. Um, there was also at that point, the plan to build new large nuclear at the Darlington uh, station. So, um, you know, bids were coming in for uh, about 2000 megawatts, which would have replaced, you know, a decent chunk of Pickering. And so for that reason, the decision was made not to, um, not to refurbish, but um, we've had decision uh, after decision to life extend the plant, um, to do the maintenance required to keep the plant going. And it's operating better than ever, actually, um, which is, I think, quite a testament um, to the durability of the technology and the excellence of the people running it. Um, but in any case, um, the plan, uh, you know, as, as you and I know, uh, when we got into this fight just over three years ago, um, was for this facility to retire. Um, in 2024, 2025, um, and you know, we looked at that as people that are concerned about climate, concerned about air pollution, concerned about a just transition, about you know, good, dignified jobs for our fellow Ontarians and Canadians and said, this is just not right. I think we took a moral mm-hmm. position on this. Um, mm-hmm. We got a lot of pushback actually from the nuclear industry itself. Um, there was a path dependency here. Um, OPG had decided they were not going to uh, refurbish this plant. They didn't want to refurbish this plant. Um, but, you know, we really kept up the fight, developed the rhetoric, the argumentation and actually um, researched and wrote a really excellent 30 page policy proposal, um, which because of the way that we have, um, you know, worked alongside and gained the respect um, of the labor movement, we're able to get into the hands of of the premier and into the minister of energy and the minister of labor uh, for some consideration. And And, you know. As I was mentioning, electricity demand sort of leveled off or decreased after uh, the financial crisis. But we're in a different period now, where we're reindustrializing Ontario, where we're trying to take advantage of uh, some of the hope around battery electric vehicles, for instance, or making low carbon steel, um, or just our population uh, growth. And there's a realization that we're seeing a real uptick in projected demand, and shutting off 15% of your electricity just does not make sense in that regard. Yeah, no, especially with the a, it's electric a, it's a, it's a vehicles. More, yeah, it's it's a more challenging uh, station to refurbish than um, the Darlington and Bruce stations, um, which have been tremendously successful. Um, you know, in this era in the Western world, we don't hear about any mega project coming in on budget um, and and on or even ahead of schedule, and we're we're seeing that here in Ontario. That was hard fought. Um, our earliest refurbishments um, in in Pickering uh, in the early 2000s uh, did not go terribly well in terms of uh, you know project management. Um, But, you know, the institutional excellence has been gained. The human resources are there. And this is just, I think, such an interesting story about nuclear. When we think about nuclear, we see these big hulking power stations, fences around them. And the people that work there are kind of mysterious. I make this contrast to healthcare, right, where highly, highly complex system, um, you know, which incorporates, you know, the medical device industry, the pharmaceutical industry, um, you know, all the bureaucrats working in our hospitals and you know, uniting a whole healthcare system. Um, but it's a it's a public facing, uh, people you know narrative heavy story where you know you interact with doctors and nurses and and you have this human sense of um, a whole service and industry. On the nuclear side, um, this is a story, again, of human excellence, of thousands of thousands of people working at these plants, doing an absolutely fantastic job, um, reaching really high levels of excellence. But we never get to meet those people or talk to those people. And, you know, that's the privilege that I've had over the last few years. Um, and I think, you know, one of the challenges going forward in terms of increasing public acceptance, although, as you noted, um, You know, year after year, we're seeing very high levels of acceptance. So we have a plan now. You know, I'm finally going to get back to your initial question. What has happened in 2023? Well, I think, um, you know, in addition to the government's uh, stated intention of refurbishing Pickering now, there's talk of increasing our nuclear fleet by about 50%. So adding uh, 6,000 megawatts or, you know, six to eight large reactors worth of electricity from nuclear to the grid um and you know that's uh something that the Ontario population supports a recent polling from uh, uh Angus Reid says about 75% of the population is for this um only 12% are opposed and the remainder you know are quite sure yet um but this is a, a, a huge ringing endorsement um mm-hmm. and i hope you know our activism and media presence has has played a part in that um, it sure has. but you know the, the tides are the tides are shifting um and i think people understand that you know, our, our dabbling in the wind and solar experiment in Ontario has, has not been a particularly high value proposition. Um, and understand if we're going to run big factories, and we're going to electrify things like steel that you need reliable baseload
1: power to do that with. Let's, let's, let's touch on that point a little bit, because this is one that a lot of people don't understand. Um, you know, people think that wind and solar is very cheap, and nuclear is very expensive. This is an ingrained uh, trained response of most people. Like, why aren't we using the cheaper wind and solar? Why, why would we go to such an expensive thing as nuclear? Can you, how do you address that when people bring that up to you? Cause you obviously must be get, must get this all the time.
0: For sure, for sure. I mean, there's, there's a number of ways to, to slice this. Um, when people talk about how cheap wind and solar are, they're generally using this levelized cost of electricity measure, which is an economic measure, useful in, in planning out an energy system. It used to be very useful because we were talking about comparing power stations that were pretty similar, um, dispatchable thermal stations like a coal plant or a gas plant or a nuclear plant. Um, so it held up fairly well. There, there are some differences. I mean, these involve things like discount rates where um, the assumed um, power produced is over a 20 or 30-year window and we're seeing nuclear stations um, you know, being relicensed mm-hmm. into the 80-year period, potentially 100-year period. And so that has to you know, be reflected in our the way that we value this kind of long-term power generation. Um, but with wind and solar entering the market, levelized cost of electricity does not look at everything that's required to integrate Um, these uh, intermittent, unreliable power sources into the grid. And so, yes, when a solar panel is producing electricity, if you look at it just in isolation, that is the cheapest electricity available. But when we look at electricity as a service, which is really what it is, and, and I, again, make this comparison to healthcare all the time, Um, You don't just need a doctor there when they feel like, you know, being on shift in the emergency department. We need to organize a whole system um, with a lot of, you know, scheduling, a lot of, a lot of organization and thoughtfulness to how do we have the resources available for the public when they have, you know, a car accident at three in the morning, we need to have the doctors and nurses on staff. And so you can think about the electricity system in a similar way. Um, Wind and solar are a little bit like doctors and nurses that just come to work when they feel like it and take off when they feel like it. And you'll never have a um, solar doctor that will work a night shift, for instance. Um, And so then (laughs) what's required is to have a huge sort of on-call pool of health professionals that can come in at a moment's notice and try and keep the whole hospital operating 24-7 as it needs to do, and that becomes very expensive. So. Hopefully that kind of narrative arc, um, can, can leave your listeners with a bit of a, a deeper understanding as, as to why, and, and it, and it is some sometimes hard to get your head around why something that is so cheap when it's available, um, is not reflected in the systems cost of keeping a vital service like healthcare or like our electricity grid, um, you know, in smooth operation.
1: Yeah. I've looked into this on-call power, uh, that, that it backs up the solar and wind and has to, it has to ramp very quickly. And typically the solution is called gas peaker plants. So they, they respond to peaks when, when a cloud goes by or the wind suddenly drops across a large area. And these things are just continually burning gas to keep their generators rolling. And then they ramp up really quickly. And because of this, they're actually extremely inefficient compared to baseload gas, which is what people, you know, compare, oh, we're using a little bit of gas to back up wind and solar. Well it's not as efficient as as normal gas in terms of its its environmental footprint. Its carbon footprint is is probably twice as bad as as baseload gas because of the inefficiency of peaking this. So and, and this is something the OPG had purchased, right? They had purchased several gas plants to take the place of pickering when it was supposed to be um, retired. So that's why we had Pushback from OPG is they'd already purchased these, mm-hmm, these gas mm-hmm. plants to, to back up the, the, to fill in for the nuclear, the, the zero emission nuclear. So, you know, this, this is the, the row we had to hoe to get this, uh, the provincial government to reconsider this and to force OPG to look at a more environmentally friendly solution. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about what The future is going to look like in Ontario and in Canada in terms of nuclear pathways. People have been talking about these new SMRs. There's a new one being built at Darlington, a demonstration plant. Uh, I think AECL is, is planning to build one up in, in Chalk River. Um, and then there's the old can do technology that we're now refurbishing in at Darlington and Bruce and hopefully Pickering. Where do you see as? That we should be going as canadians for nuclear energy where where did they where does your strategy lead us well i mean we're a you know
0: large diverse country um with provinces with radically different needs populations and grid sizes so um there's a role for different sizes of nuclear across this country and i would separate that into three categories um and hopefully this can sort of disambiguate um the smr concept so Um, We need micro reactors for um, remote communities and remote mines if we're serious about decarbonizing the north um, and also providing energy security. You know, we're seeing with increasingly unpredictable weather and ice flows, we have communities where sometimes we need to fly in diesel fuel to run electric generators, and that is just extraordinarily expensive. Um, But otherwise, you know, you got to barge it in. If you have unfavorable ice conditions, you need to make sure you have, you know, sometimes six months to a year worth of heating oil and diesel uh, stored on site. Um, So there's big opportunities in the far north and remote regions um, for what are called micro reactors. Um, which can provide both heat and electricity. And, you know, incidentally, I I lived uh, right on the border of a a actually pretty large uh, indigenous reserve in southern Ontario, and they had this huge natural gas-heated greenhouse, but it became this real focal point, like a little tropical vacation you could come to and grow your traditional tobacco or some fruits and veggies and things like that. Of course, not good for the climate because they were burning an obscene amount of gas to heat it up, but you can imagine the kind of... um, Prosperity you could have just in terms of heat prosperity. I mean, you could have like a spa, you could have a nicely heated greenhouse, you could use district heating, um, which is a great way to use that sort of lower temperature uh, waste heat from a nuclear reactor and reliable electricity. So that's a kind of vision for the north. Mm. Um, it's not the highest yield in terms of our carbon reductions. I mean, they are burning a significant amount of fossil fuels in the far north, but these are very small communities. Um, so. I'm always thinking uh, from a medical perspective um, of triage and how we can devote limited resources to get the biggest bang for our buck, to basically right. be utilitarian. Um, so important use case, but not the, not the greatest sort of way to reduce our emissions. A second scale that we need um, is these grid scale, small uh, modular reactors. So about 300 megawatts. Um, and that is what you're mentioning is being deployed um, at the Darlington uh, nuclear site. Um, and so the vision here is to deploy these sizes of reactors in places like New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Alberta, Saskatchewan. You can't have a single generator that's more than about 10% of your grid capacity, because if that has to go offline for maintenance or trips offline, then that introduces too much instability to your grid. Right. Right. Um, so we have that kind of a sizing. And then lastly, we have what you refer to as our our old candu technology, which I'll push back against a little bit. Um, we have uh, you know newer iterations of candu which have been produced um, through the uh, lineage of this design. Um, this is a really special reactor. Um, there are only three widely deployed reactor technologies that have You know, survived and and proved themselves to be the best technologies. Two of them are American the pressurized light water reactor and the boiling light water reactor. And we have the pressurized heavy water reactor, which we generated or which we designed here in Canada to take advantage of our natural uranium um, and to ensure that we could produce a reactor domestically without relying on foreign supply chains. Um, Hmm. And again, these are the three widely deployed uh, reactors which have proved to be economic. Um, which have proved to have operational excellence and to be quite long lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, while this reactor technology was developed in the 50s and 60s, um, there's been this iterative process of learning, um, of gaining operational experience. And, you know, there's this love affair right now with uh, with innovation in nuclear um, and, There's two sort of types of innovation. One is, um, you know, getting out a a set of sort of priorities and and hitting the blueprints and designing something that's totally novel, maybe in terms of the coolant that's used. Maybe we're not going to use water. We're going to use sodium metal or we're going to use high
1: temperature reactors. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And, And that's an important area of research. But the more pragmatic innovation comes from operational experience of a nuclear power plant that we use now, that we know that works now and making that better and better and better. And that's what's yeah. led to the extraordinary advances in the operations of our nuclear fleet, both in Canada and abroad, where early on these reactors weren't anticipated to be online more than 50% of the time and were up in the 90% range. Um, there's certainly a role for innovation in, in, the, um, in the coolants and the moderators, but that innovation isn't just starting now. It's been ongoing since the 50s and 60s, and there's a reason that our water-based technologies have risen to the top. Um, they've outperformed these other reactor designs. So I think what we see around the world is a need to have a strong basis in existing high-performance technology and then to do some research around the edges. So just to kind of answer for your listeners some of those questions around, well, what, what about this advanced nuclear stuff? Or isn't KANDU old?
1: Yes, We're yes. working
0: now on a the largest CANDU reactor which will ever be deployed, um, which is in the uh, 1,000 megawatt scale. So yeah. Um, what was SNC-Lavalin, which is now um, Atkins Realis, um, is, has been asked by the utilities to make a reactor that's slightly larger than the ones we have at Darlington. Um, and mm-hmm. they are on a you know, rush protocol to do that, to have a reactor ready in time to um, put in a bid at the Bruce station, where we're looking at, again, 4,800 megawatts of new nuclear. So that would be about wow. uh, four to five large candy units there. Um, what does that mean for Ontario? Um, it means that we're building off a real strength that we have here. Ontario, we started off with you know a decent endowment of hydroelectricity, mostly at Niagara Falls, but scattered across the province. But we don't have the kind of resources that Quebec has, for instance. And we quickly outstripped that, and we started adding coal, which was what was available at the time. Mm-hmm. That coal. Um, was not from in province. If we had coal mines in Ontario, we'd probably still be using the stuff, but we had to import it from either the Atlantic provinces or out west on trains very expensive, and later on barges from from the U.S. We were impacted by all kinds of things like coal strikes in the U.S. or the lakes freezing and not be got the barges across or just big price oscillations and because we had the center of of nuclear accidents the largest nuclear research uh center outside of the u.s uh in the post-war period and we decided we want to be a high-tech country we want to really lean into our engineering prowess and our advantages we developed the candy reactor and we've again continued to iterate and improve that so you know i'm really excited i know we got to wrap up soon um about um you know the direction that we're headed the way that we've steered the ship you know I'm, I'm sorry we didn't get to, uh, I could list them off quickly, some of the accomplishments of this year. Um, but, you know, we have nuclear, all forms of nuclear, large, small refurbishment in our clean tech investment tax credit, which is Canada's response to the Inflation Reduction Act. We fought hard to get nuclear included within our green bond framework, which is going to ease financing for for these projects, which are quite capital intensive. We're going to get Pickering refurbished. We expect that formal announcement later this month. We're seeing um, not just one, but, four SMRs promised for Darlington, and again, that large nuclear uh, project, um, which is being planned carefully now at Bruce. So um, I think a really bright future, um, we should continue with the strengths that we have, you know, with this nuclear-powered province, nuclear being the second cheapest source of electricity on our grid, and what provides us with the power required, the baseload power required, to reindustrialize this province um, for the benefit of Ontarians and, and for the benefit of the climate, doing that with ultra low carbon, really the lowest life cycle emissions power source that we have.
1: Chris, thank you so much for for coming and telling us about the work that you guys have been doing. It's, it's impressive and, and thank you so much for doing it and leading this work because it's critical and I'm so happy that Rational thinking is starting to come into the picture. Um, it's been a lot of work and it it always is. And as you say, it takes these one on one discussions. It takes the the personal touch to go in and, you know, empathize with people and, and address their fears and show that we have common goals of, of improving, you know, life for everyone in this province. And, you know, look at the progress we've made. Uh, in nuclear and getting rid of coal and cleaning the air and, and, you know, just saving lives. Uh, the nuclear medicine of like the isotope production of the can do reactors for supporting nuclear medicine. It's certainly an, a, a great success story. And I'm looking forward to the angle of the just transition to maybe help leverage this into other provinces to replace the coal plants in Alberta and replacing, you know, all of these gas plants with other high tech jobs that are sustainable and environmentally friendly and don't pollute the air and kill people. Um, so I, I really appreciate the work you've done and thank you for coming on. I know you're a very busy guy. Appreciate you coming and chatting again and we'll, we'll have to do this again soon. Thank you so much
0: beautiful beautiful and it's a shameless pitch here um, if you want to support the work of C4NE we have a donate button on the website so go to www.c4ne.ca we can use your support and uh, you know we've accomplished so much but there's there's always more to do so uh, thank you for considering that and thank you for having me on Al a pleasure
1: if you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page at patron.podbean.com slash therationalview. Thanks for listening.